Reentry, recidivism, mass incarceration, criminal justice reform. Yeah, these have all become popular topics in the past 15 years. It seems that a lot of experts have emerged and everybody has an opinion and a program to solve it all. I've been on the ground in prisons and on the street doing the work for the past 34 years. And I want to introduce you to others who are on the front lines grinding it out every day. I'm Rocky DeYoung, and this is Kicking It Off the Grid. Greetings and welcome to a COG episode of Kicking It Off the Grid. Again, this is where we tend to focus on a certain area. Uh, I don't do an interview here. We focus on building our COG skills, kicking it off the grid skills, so that you can do a better job out there and maybe have a better understanding of how things work and how they function. Today we're going to talk about responsivity. So what is that? Responsivity is the last R in the R&R model, which is risk, needs, responsivity. It's used by just about every criminal justice agency that works directly with individuals that are either incarcerated or under community supervision of some sort. That could be probation, uh, supervised release, parole, and it's often the piece that goes missing and is sometimes not even mentioned. Kind of like the lowercase n back in the day, if you remember. Yeah, let's not go that far back. So the R&R model was developed back in the early 90s by a group of correctional psychologists in response to the nothing works view that had been circulating since the 70s. Now, two things there. One, if you're a hardcore person out on the street doing reentry or in prison, working with people, etc., and you hear correctional psychologist, you might think, yeah, what do these cats know? Well, these dudes knew a lot, and they learned a lot. I have great respect for them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they're doing this in response to the nothing works view that I mentioned. Now, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, just Google nothing works and corrections. And you'll find the story about the state of New York commissioning a group to do research on whether treatment programs worked in prison or not. Uh, They spent a lot of time and money on this, uh, hired a group to do it. And uh, it kind of backfired on them. And a little show called 60 Minutes took it to the next level. Imagine that, the media taking something and blowing it out of proportion. And they had declared that nothing works in corrections. (laughs) So this was adopted by a lot of folks. And it's still somewhat out there these days. You run into all kinds of folks that just say, now what's the point? Nothing works. We just... Stick them in this place and uh, hold on to them as long as we can. Fortunately, this group 
a few guys, Don Andrews, Paul Genroll, Robert Ross, James Bonta, Robert Hogue, Stephen Warmoth. They formed, which was basically the Canadian School of Rehabilitation. And two guys in particular, Andrews and Gendrell, were psychology interns at Kingston Penitentiary in the 60s. Now, if I say Kingston Penitentiary, this is Kingston, Ontario. They had, well, they still have six prisons in that city. I think there were eight during this time. And Kingston Penitentiary was built in 1833, opened in 1835, and remain the most notorious penitentiary in all of Canada, maybe North America. So when I read that these two dudes were psychology interns at a place like this, oh, what a great place to cut your teeth if you're going to attempt to understand the psychology of criminal conduct. Now, Scenes from the mayor of Kingstown, if you're familiar with that series, they were shot in this prison because it closed in 2013. But uh, who knew this existed? And they had that many prisons in one town. Can you imagine what life was like in there? So I, I think a lot of what goes on in that series, Mayor of Kingstown, is fascinating. Um Sure, it's an industry, and there's a reason it was everything was located there. Just look on a map, you'll figure that out. So this group of men developed what is now the gold standard for corrections. So risk assessments tell us who needs the most help. So you don't want to put all your resources, and uh, which are limited, and uh, all your time and effort into folks who don't need a whole lot of help. You want to have a way to identify who needs the most help. So that's what risk assessments are for. So your highs and your mids, that's where your focus needs to be. Out of that come your needs assessments. That tells us what these folks uh, and their criminogenic needs are. And then responsivity informs us as to how these needs should be addressed. So it's kind of the complete package. And in my experience, the systems I've worked with do a great job of assessing risk, great job of assessing needs, but seem to fall short when it comes to responsivity. Now, my purpose here, I want to be clear, is not to blame or whine or complain or point fingers, but to recognize, along with many correction staff and probation officers that I still rub elbows with, that this is the weakest part of the model. It only makes sense. And frankly, I don't see how it can be fully applied the way things are set up now. Some of the issues uh, include high caseloads, staff buy-in. Remember, there's still that those folks that hang on with enough and works. Uh, resistant clients. You know, you can offer everything that's helpful People still need to buy in and, and attend and engage. And budgets, money is always an issue. All of these are factors. So, again, let's break down responsivity and get a little better idea of what's going on here. So, one, there are three 
basic divisions for responsive. You have general responsivity, and this is where a priority is given to usually cognitive-based programs or interventions, right? That can take place on the inside. Most treatment programs have a CBT uh, component to them now in prison. Uh, and many programs on the outside have those as well. So uh, that's become much more popular, and I think personally much more effective uh, since it's been embraced. But that's usually general responsivity. Then there's specific responsivity, and here's where the focus is on the need to tailor the intervention to the individual. Oof, now this is, this is difficult. So you got to consider things like learning style, personal characteristics, ethnicity, all that type of stuff. And then thirdly, uh, what's called supervision and reintegration. So I like to call this part collaborative responsivity. And this is where we take responsivity to the next level. All right. So this is a broader consideration of factors that preclude an individual from participating in programming or services services due to a number of issues. So again, the objective is to get clients to engage, right? So they usually center on trust, but could include learning challenges and things of that nature. So um, some Biological examples are race, gender, even maturity. Uh, psychological examples, so intelligence, impulsivity, emotions, poor motivation, and even social factors. So poverty, and that could be generational, uh, culture, uh, geographical, uh, and just your history in general. These are all factors that come into play when you're thinking about responsivity. So you see my point about why it's complex I and mean, it's difficult. Uh, and therefore, uh, no need to complain about this. Just figure, because that's easy to do, right? Rather, it drives us to figure out how do we get this to a point where it's actually functioning. So responsivity, again, is generally focused on delivering services that target criminogenic needs. But when we take it to the next level, uh, which I'm calling collaborative responsivity, here's where we take well-trained individuals in the community. I'll say it again, well-trained individuals in the community and they collaborate with agencies to assist in these areas. Uh, and again, the three areas, biological, psychological, social. If that happens, I think we increase our odds of better outcomes. Another example of how this could play out is uh, let's just look at driver's license or transportation. Let's just take that category. Not having a driver's license is not a criminogenic need, right? But it plays a huge part in anybody's success. So uh, the first issue with transportation, you might not have a license. 
And the challenge of getting one uh, usually includes managing or figuring out your fines and your fees. Can you pay them? Often, I know here in Minnesota, often if you pay your fines and fees, you declare yourself guilty and they'll suspend your li- they'll give you your license and then suspend it for a year. <laughs> so you need help on that, you know. Most people don't know that coming out. So whereas it's not a criminogenic need, it certainly plays a huge part when it comes to employment, to pro-social engagement, to um, managing your frustration level. I remember that little red button's always floating over your right shoulder, the effort button. Uh, you just want to press that thing and say, what is the effing point? Now, under transportation, again, uh, you might not have a car, which sometimes is good. Uh, we like to say cars go places, and sometimes not to good places. But if you're on the bus and you're limited to that and uh, your color comes up for your UA and it's across town and you just finished work, it gets complicated. Uh, or even the ability to fix or maintain a car. That's that just We take that for granted. Uh, how about language skills? You could be poor in English. Or what I encounter most often is... Poor communication style. You get all flustered and you raise your voice. Or as I experience a number of times, I've worked with high-risk individuals who can talk about four or five things at the same time. I mean, just going at it. It's often interpreted in court as non-compliance. I mean, they're being resistant. So I've had to step in and say, no, no, this is what Jimmy was saying. It slowed Jimmy down and remind him, hey, one thing at a time. Remember we talked about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you hit rewind, and everything settles down, and we're back to that. Well, that's responsivity. You're considering the individual, right? And often, when you're working with high-risk clients, um, you'll discover they don't really respond that well to traditional CBT approaches, so... Uh, I know, thinking for a change, you have to have, you have to really be committed to fidelity. So you have to do it the same way every time. And it seems sort of prescribed and plastic, and high risk folks will just pick up on that in a minute. Uh, it doesn't usually go over well. So uh, another specific area is trust not willing to partake in a program that is suggested or required by the system. Now, you might know if you're working alongside an agency and the individual that this is a good program, etc. But you can go a long way to helping the client engage and trust and at least check it out. That's usually the first step. So you got to be able to sell that. Uh, and of course, along with trust, is convincing them that you're not the police. You're just there to help out, right? Be that guide, that go-between, that change agent, if you will. Uh, Another example, reading and writing. This might stop some 
folks from even signing up for a good program, even if they want to. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper to find out what's going on. If you have civil legal issues and uh, some lawyers want to help you out, they send you a short form to fill out so they can get rolling on it. You look at it and go, oh, I'm not doing this. Okay, you're going to need some help there. Ethnic barriers are another one. So you might be many clients. I experience this all the time. Unwilling to collaborate with other ethnicities. No, that's just the reality, people. You know, you might you might get all jacked up about this and think, oh, well, you know, how can they have those sort of views? And well, what do you think goes on in prison? Right? And you come out after doing 10, 15 years of time, segregated like they are, uh, siding up with everybody and, uh, well, everybody's siding up, all of that. Uh, you're not going to come out and just blend with everybody and trust everybody. So there's ethnicity is a real thing. Uh, and then geographical issues. Some folks don't want to leave their area. They're just comfortable with that. Other folks don't want to go into a certain area. Yet those issues as well. Where are they going to be required to go take their UA? Is that a sensitive area? Uh, need to take those things into consideration. Now again... This requires an understanding of how systems work and why certain things are the way they are. The easy route is to complain and to point out what's messed up. I mean, that's easy to do. You can sit here all day and point out what's messed up. The more difficult route is focused on creating an environment where things can be learned by individuals and systems can view the assisting organization as an asset. Uh, but I'll emphasize it again, well-educated people on the outside. That's what we need. Otherwise, you're just going to be viewed as hug-a-thug, and you're not going to be an asset. So we do a lot of classes now training the private sector, uh, in particular peer recovery specialists on understanding criminal justice systems, so state, county, federal, how they function, and uh, we give a lot of advice on how to interact and to assess from a responsivity perspective where a person is at and what their needs are and uh, where the, how the system is going to view you and where they need the most help. So again, responsivity. Uh, let's respond to responsivity. <laughs> Let's see if I can say that 10 times. Responsivity. Let's focus on it, learn about it, and get at it. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And check out our website at montageranchysolutions.com for trainings, consulting, materials you might need to up your game. This has been a Smart Compassion production made possible by Montage Reentry Solutions. Take care and live life, people. <laughs>